it's not a job. It's a lifestyle. And you're asked to do things that no one else is asked to do. We want something that's lasting, that's credible, that's fixed, that's enduring. Get on with it. This is no longer in the too hard basket because people mm. are dying. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. We weren't out there to take country. We were out on your I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where you know you're going to funerals quite Do often. I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, or what can you do for your country? The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Welcome to Life on the Line. I'm Alex Lloyd, hosting two previous guests of the show in a special panel discussion. You can listen to this episode in your usual podcast app or watch our Zoom recording on YouTube. On August 11th, the interim report of the Royal Commission into Defence and Veterans Suicide was submitted to the Governor-General and then to Parliament. While this podcast sees itself as a veteran storytelling platform first and foremost, topics as exceptional as this are an ongoing part of the stories of veterans and families around the country. As a nation, we've lost more veterans to suicide than we did to combat in the Afghanistan and Iraq wars. This Royal Commission was something tirelessly campaigned for by veterans and families, so this interim report is an important measure of whether it's achieving what so many wanted it to. To discuss the interim report, we've welcomed back two previous guests. Wes H. Hennessy is a veteran of the 2nd Commando Regiment, a deeply experienced and well-decorated soldier after many combat deployments to Afghanistan. H, welcome back to the show. G'day, Alex. It's great to be back. Renee Wilson is the CEO of Australian War Widows New South Wales, an ambassador for the Commando Welfare Trust, and is a staunch advocate for veterans and their families. She is also the wife of veteran Gary Wilson, who was significantly injured in a helicopter crash in Afghanistan. Renee, welcome back to the show. Hi, Alex. Thank you for having me. H, Renee, we have a 348-page report to condense to an hour's discussion of what it says, what it's got right and otherwise. Where do we start? H. So first of all, I'd like to um, thank you very much, Alex and Life on the Line, for hosting us today and providing this opportunity through your platform. I think it's extremely important, as you've highlighted, um, to your listeners and, and all others in the community and wider community. Um, huge thank you, uh, Renee, for accepting the invite. I know you've done a lot of work um, on the report uh, with the Royal Commission. Um, and, and I also know you do a lot of work um, well before that and around that. So um, I can't thank you enough for the work that you do, especially with veterans, families and et cetera. Um, the f- first thing I'd like to uh, acknowledge is the persons who have contributed to the report um, and have made the report possible. And I think first and foremost, and there's too many to go into um, individually. So what I would like to do is just particularly pay, um, pay note to the persons who have given uh, lived experiences um, to the Royal Commission. And I, I would just like everyone to acknowledge that every single one of those persons that has given that experience has relived 
a traumatic experience. Um, and that can't be underestimated, the toll of that on those people. So there's a lot of people um, that have contributed, um, but there's a significant body of people that have contributed, which has caused them to relive trauma. So we should acknowledge them. Um, the intent of this, as Alex has briefly mentioned, um, you know, there's, there's too much to deep dive. So we are going to wave top it a little bit, um, but we'll just go through the recommendations. Is there a format? Some of them would be grouped because they are all um, based off a similar area, whether that be DVA or a legislation or parliamentary thing. Then um, myself and Renee will just bring up some uh, particular miscellaneous points that we've each chosen and, and would like to go into. So uh, again, it's not going to be exhaustive, there's 348 pages. We have trying to keep to a timeline uh, and also to make it you know, interesting to the main topics for um, defence families, veterans, and others that may be listening. So without further ado, I've asked Renee to start. Um, she's uh, got um, a lot more experience in handle, as I've already said, in, in some of these topics, uh, been in a lot more meetings than myself. Um, so without further ado, I'll hand over to you, Renee, to go over the first group of recommendations. Thanks, H. Um, I, before I get into that, I too would just like to acknowledge um, every single individual who has come forward uh, and I like to say has really uh, put themselves in one of the most vulnerable situations they can, uh, whether that is through writing their story and telling the commission or, you know, probably an, an incredibly vulnerable thing and that is to appear before the commission and, and tell your story in real life to a room full of strangers that you don't know. Uh, and that don't know you, don't know your experiences, and to put yourself out there to be judged um, really speaks to the passion of these individuals to make the system better for those that come after. So I'd like to acknowledge them. I'd like to thank them because it is incredibly difficult. Uh, I'd also like to acknowledge both Alex, you, uh, and H, um, and in particular H because you've, been there but in a different way you've shared your vulnerability that has enabled many veterans to uh, come forward and get this courage themselves to share their stories uh, you've also highlighted to me some of the bigger more strategic pieces to help me ask the questions around why uh, or what I like to say yes but why uh, I'm going off topic a little bit Alex you can I'll get into trouble for it later um, but you know, even if we, for a minute, just think about this and, and you think about the, the war crimes investigation, my question is always, yes, but why? So, you know, even if the worst happened, my question is why? Um, and I'd like to thank you, Alex, for putting these stories out there so that you are forcing all of us who have never served to understand and think and acknowledge and learn about the unique nature of military service and H, people like you that just put it out there so that people can understand. So thank you both. Um, <clears throat> similar to H, I'd like to acknowledge uh, all of the effort that went into that 348-page report. I can't imagine anything more difficult than to summarise 12 months' worth of evidence. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, you know, for the I, I have to say I have interacted with the commissioners I've appeared before the commission and it feels like a safe space 
Um, and if you are out there and you are wondering, am I relevant? The answer is yes. Uh, will I be heard? The answer is yes. Is it a safe space to be heard? The answer is yes. Um, and so I'd really like to acknowledge the commissioners and their team for creating that space for us to have what is an incredibly difficult conversation. Um, and of course, all of the policy team to bring something like this together. These reports don't just happen. Um, and, you know, we might now go into some of the things that are, that are not quite there, but that's not a, a, a bad thing. And that's not a comment or um, basically saying the commission isn't doing their job. You know, the commission, it, it's a process and it's a process that we as a veteran community are learning about as we're going through it. Um, so turning to the recommendations, the first one, <clears throat> well, there's a number that are kind of all a bit similar. So the first one that I'm going to look at is um, eliminating the claims backlog. Then we move into improving the administration. Uh, and then the next one kind of rolls on about DVA's funding needs and staffing caps. They're all kind of related to the same thing. Um, <clears throat> for my mind, I think what's important here is acknowledging that the claims backlog that is being referred to and is grabbing all of the headlines at the moment uh, is the front door, if you like. These are the initial liability claims. What's important is to be mindful uh, and, you know, I would really call on the government and suggest to the government to be thinking about second and third order consequences to these recommendations uh, when, they, when they accept them because I really, I, I don't think they have a choice not to um, given the evidence that's been presented before the commission. DVA has been under-resourced for the longest possible time. However, uh, there is also a lot of, um, in my view, a lot of short-sighted thinking. We think about the initial thing. So, you know, the claims backlog, for instance, uh, it's about, you know, time's taken to process. It's about, you know, how quickly can we assess a claim? Can we get it over the line and get the veteran into the system? What we need to be careful of is that we don't move those 42,000 people from the front door to the living room. Uh, because the system and the DVA system is already under pressure in every part of its business, including for the veterans that are already in there and on their books. So, you know, a recent example is, uh, and this is a personal example, but in trying to maintain the household services that we have because of my husband's injuries, uh, it was getting to the point where we were going to have to try to find another provider again uh, because DVA wasn't paying the bills because their account system was backed up to the hilt uh, and it was taking them 40, 50 days to turn around an invoice. So I think it's really important to not just look at, this is more than just a numbers game and the government really needs to think about bolstering the rest of the system all the way along so that as that veteran comes through the, first, the front door and the department then becomes open for business for them, it's really important to make sure that, every, that they're ready to take them because I would argue that the evidence that we've heard so far from DVA uh, and the evidence that's presented in here, I'm not sure that that's the case. 
Um, and that goes to the point around resourcing. These recommendations are all about give DVA more resources, give DVA more resources. It's important those resources are used appropriately. Um, you know, in, in most governments and government departments, we all know that resources aren't always, they're not very efficient. Um, so I think thinking about how do we do this effectively, thinking about uh, looking outside the box for solutions as well, um, is really important to make sure that the right decisions are made with whatever resources will flow through from this report to DVA. Uh, the one other observation I'd make is in particular the elimination of the claims backlog uh, and the employment of all of these staff and the recommendation to remove the average staffing level cap. Um, Anyone who's an employer at the moment will tell you or ask you, where are all these people that I need to employ? So there's a really base assumption here that, you know, there's all these people out there waiting to be employed by the department um, and by the government. And, you know, while that might be the case, um, the market is incredibly tight at the moment and we need these people to hit the ground running if that claims backlog is going to be eliminated and eliminated quickly. Um, so I think there's that base assumption that I, I'm not sure has been tested against the current employment environment. Can I just inject there, um, Renee? So just uh, I'll go back in reverse. So on that, I think it's really important to understand uh, just something one step further. Renee touched on at the back of that there, and that's the recruiting process. So, um, and this was highlight. I'll, I'll admit, uh, this was only highlighted to me uh, with discussions with a um, advocate on Vietnam's Veterans Day on Thursday, and, and we're having a discussion. And she said, "But you know what the problem is going to be, H, or what people don't think about." And like I said, Renee's alluded to it is then the training. So, not only do we need to find and recruit the right people, and I'm by no means making excuses, but that's what we want to do in this is just set some realities there for people. You know, it's good to read this and go, yeah, I know DVA, um, I was going to use a profanity, um, but we all know what people generally say about DVA. It's, all, it's, it's easy to make that statement. What we need to look at and think and make people aware, because then you can manage expectations, right? And this is the problem, is people don't know how long things are taking and why. So to help manage those expectations, so just say if we were to grow DVA by, and, and I don't know these figures, I'm just going to throw some stuff out there. If we were to grow DVA by 20%, so just say that's hiring an X amount of personnel. Now, by the time they write all those job descriptions, et cetera, in detail, send them out to recruiting agencies, recruiting agency goes through screening processes, then they go through to final interviews, then they're recruited, then they need to be inducted as anybody does into an organization. Then they need to be trained. So, We've made a lot of progress so far in this first year with the commission, but for people to think that this commission is going to have this wave um, of change that's going to come, it will start a wave of change, but I do not see a fast process occurring. So I think people need to understand that first and foremost. Um, two other, uh, sorry, three other things, um, well, the three uh, legislative things, which I won't go into, but so people can understand uh, where the complexity and confusion lies for veterans and, and defence persons. So there are three schemes, and I'm by no means an expert on it, but one's a veterans, or that one's called a veterans uh, rehabilitation 
Uh, one's a defence rehabilitation and one is a uh, military rehabilitation. So they're all complete different components of legislation and policy. So if you look at someone like myself, for example, who joined uh, as a young lad in the uh, 90s and went through uh, his 20 odd year service and left at, um, sorry, one of the leave, December 2014. So someone like that gets captured or is captured under all three of these legislations. What does that mean? It means depending when and what my claim is that the injury or, or illness, um, where uh, I provide the evidence for that claim to be claimed under, it depends what legislation it comes under. So for example, someone like myself will have multiple things being claimed after multiple uh, legislations and policies. And then all of those have sort of got amendments or some have got a few amendments over time as well. What does this mean? It means an extremely complicated system. And that's, you know, another, that's what we all knew, but that is a key, thankfully, recommendation that's come out of the Royal Commission that these three legislative guidance documents and all the associated policies make for an extremely complicated um, uh, compensation system, which makes it extremely protracted. Just to finish, um, or just to finish on this little piece, Again, what does that mean? And because um, this is so emotive, you will note me through this, and I, I mean in the most respectful way, talk a little bit about data, and you know, I actually enjoy maths. The thing with data and numbers is they're unemotive, and they don't lie. One plus one is two, two plus two is two. So I think it's important we just understand that. So noting the three MERCA, I'll refer to them as MERCA, DERCA, and BEA, as they're collectively uh, referred to. So... DVA has a performance timeline that they put against these uh, three legislations. And that is a timeline that they've said they should be able to turn that um, claim around in. Um, so for Merca, um, you know, it's 90 days and that's both for an initial, and I'm reading here on purpose, uh, for initial liability and the permanent impairment. Uh, for incapacity, it's 50 days. For Dirk, it's 100 days. And you can see there's different days because the legislations are different and different requirements, hence my previous point. And then for VEA, it's 100 days. Um, now, again, referring to the report, what does that mean? Um, the claims, current claim process timelines for VEA, noting what I previously said, so it's uh, 350%. So it's sitting just under 350 days. Um, and for Merca and Durka, you know, without going into all the little worms here, uh, we'll just agree that it's you know, between 325, about 250 to 325, depending on types of claims and stuff. The point being, the time that the DVA has said that they, you know, that they aim for, so what's their best practice to get the claims turned around and responses given, et cetera, and to look after our veterans and defence persons are all up anywhere from 250 to 350%. That there has been acknowledged, and again, we knew it, but the report has formally acknowledged it, is a massive, massive issue for veterans because they don't know um, how, they don't know when their issues are going to be resolved. Remember, resolution for a veteran and a defence person is about their quality of life and being able to move on. So they're given, importantly, some financial support 
and some um, uh, medical support because remember they're claiming for something so generally they've got some medical issues so they don't have these impounding bills now those years as it is here that that goes on puts them in this um, uh, um, puts them in an, uh, an unknown area with their life and lifestyle and that's where we've also found that they're most um, most susceptible because you know that they, they can't you know buy a house or they can't rent a place they can't set themselves up they can't start working again because it may go against one of the legislations until the legislation is being clear and, and then they end up in this uh, circle um i'll hand back over to um to renee hey if i can just add a couple of observations uh to Certainly. all of the important information you just shared about the legislation i think it's important to also recognize the underpinning philosophies between the three of them so why are they different uh the Veterans Entitlement Act was introduced um, as part of a, a, the cornerstone of the repatriation system when the repatriation system was introduced. And that was to recognise the unique nature of military service, uh, its impacts on veterans and on their families, uh, eventually their families, including the, mainly including the widows. It was there to recognise that veterans had been to war and they were forever changed by that war. Then uh, the philosophy behind the system changed at some point, I don't have the dates to hand, but the then government of the day, we were, we as Australia, um, you know, and, and as the world, we're in this long, uh, well, as in the Western world, we're in this long period of peace. So a decision was made to bring in another piece of legislation because veterans weren't going to war anymore uh, and that was what was then called the Safety Rehabilitation Compensation Act, now called the Defence, blah, 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 Durka. Um, that, the underlying philosophy of that is, is basically a workers' compensation scheme. So it took, it, it really, um, to a certain extent, changed the system from one that recognised the unique nature of military service and all of its flow-on effects to one that was now about workers' compensation. Uh, and the idea was they would work together. So if a veteran was deployed, then they'd be covered under the VEA. Um, if a veteran stayed in Australia the whole time, then, you know, all sustained injuries as part of their normal occupational uh, risks and hazards, then they'd be covered under the other. It's quickly realised that uh, there was a, ne a need to perhaps take the best of both and smoosh them into another piece of legislation, which is how I've ended up with MERCA. The fundamental difference between MERCA and the rest of, and the other two is that MERCA is really based around rehabilitation and it tries to emphasise rehabilitation uh, and getting back to, um, you know, a, a normal-ish a normal life following the impacts of service. The VEA was very much um, almost like an American-based system. You've been, you've been to war, you've been injured, you're now retired. Um, mm. So it's, I think the philosophies are all very different, which is what, and, you know, and all of those have just been handed off um, to the Department of Veterans Affairs to administer. Um, and it's really difficult because how do you reconcile those philosophies? How do you tell one person, because you were injured in this time period, that must be related to peacetime service, so therefore we're going to treat you like a workers' comp claim. 
And in fact, where the Safety Rehabilitation Compensation Act started was a a system that started uh, in defence and defence handed it over to DVA to administer. So it was always set up as a, as a workers' comp scheme. Um, I think we have to also recognise that this isn't the first time that recommendations have been made to harmonise the legislation and to get on with it. What I like about the Royal Commission pointing to it and really amplifying all, every, all of the evidence and all of the other reports that have recommended the same thing is it's just saying, get on with it. This is no longer in the too hard basket because people mm. are dying and we, we simply cannot continue the way we're continuing. DVA has always put it in the too hard basket because um, some veterans organisations and associations are, are very unhappy uh, and we always look at the you know, the potential losses. And I, I still, there are ways around this and we need to just do it. We need to get on as a community and we need to recognise that this generation of veterans is saying enough is enough and there is no more uh, urgent action required than to harmonise those pieces of legislation, make the hard decisions and get on with it. Um, I think the other thing that's just, I just wanted to reflect back when H was talking about um, the initial liability claims and it taking, you know, 300 days, 250 days. We have to remember um, what's happening to that veteran in the interim. And, and yes, you know, um, having access to medical treatment's important, having, um, you know, access to financial support in that time is important if they're unable to work. But when we reflect on well, any of us, how would any of us feel if we put in a claim uh, and we heard almost, we got, you know, we got access to a few things, but we heard almost nothing from the organisation until that claim had either been accepted or denied. And that's probably just a letter because they're under the pump already. Uh, what happens to your family? Well, there is a huge increase in emotional and mental pressure in that household you know, that veteran is angry about the fact that they've heard nothing and doesn't know and, you know, it's scary. It's scary because these claims are people's lives. They're not just pieces of paper. And that just increases the pressure across all of the household. You know, dad's angry now all the time mm. and the kids don't know why. And, you know, and I'm being quite gendered here, so please forgive me. Um, but, you know, mum's sitting there going, I don't know what's going on. And I'm trying to manage this emotional and mental load. I'm trying to manage his behaviour. I'm trying to keep the kids calm so they know it's not their fault. This is everything that happens in those 350 days. Mm. And I think we should also acknowledge, um, and what, well, what has been acknowledged is through that time, and you hit on it, Renee, is um, you know, nothing gets, well, generally speaking, not many things get better with time when we're talking about a, a negative issue. So whatever their health issue is, you know, it's getting worse and worse and worse. And then when, especially when we're talking about mental health, um, you know, they, they start to ruminate. If people aren't aware of uh, rumination, you know, it's a, it's a huge thing. You remember, or sorry, it's a huge issue with a lot of people. We're basically, you know, you get in that spiraling or circular 
motion where the problems aren't getting worse, but you make them worse because your thought process gets into this cyclic spin and it amplifies uh, what's what's happening in your head. And it's only happening in your head. But the point is, and as Renee said, that unknown, it just makes it worse. Um, and again, you know, the, the strains across families, across finances, because they may need more meds or, or they may need to, in fact, be hospitalised. They may need some home care. Anyway, the point is that, um, you know, it just gets worse and worse. Another, um, as uh, Renee alluded to, um, there, there's been 50 reports, um, and, and this, again, comes up in the recommendations here. Um, you know, there's been 50 reports uh, done over the last however many years. Sorry, don't quote me. Um, and out of those 50 reports, numerous governments uh, have concluded 750-odd recommendations. Now, a, a problem that the Royal Commission is having is uh, seeking um, clarification on what and why and whether um, components of those recommendations were, um, were in fact, uh, followed through or not. Uh, and this is this is a big problem, and hence why it is one of the urgent fixes in the Royal Commission. So it's important that everyone understands that. Um, and they, they're quoting things like parliamentary privilege, etc. So basically, that because a uh, an in confidence discussion was had uh, with myself and a minister, um, that I don't need to um, devolve that information. Uh, and that's you know basically sort of stonewalling, um, as people are seeing it within the commission. Uh, and it's been extremely hindering, sorry, it's extremely hindered um, progress in certain things. So what the Royal Commission needs to know and understand um, so they can receive all this information, but there's also a ton of information that's previously been received. And out of that information that's been received, as I've said, 750 recommendations were made. Um, so we need to know exactly uh, what the recommendations were and why and what decision processes. So what the cycle was uh, by various ministers at that time as to why they did or did not do um, what we don't know whether they've done. Um, so lifting that cloud off that uh, and will certainly help. And how that will help is we won't repeat or there, or there doesn't need to be a duplication in work. You know, if, if the review has been done on something and it's found to be credible, which is the assumption, um, and just, and the recommendations were made, then they can capture that now um, and, and add it to existing work. So that, that's a, a really big thing. And and I, I will be honest, that was something that surprised me. It, was, it didn't surprise me. I knew there was a lot of previous, <clears throat> excuse me, reviews. Oh, I wasn't aware that a figure was 50-odd, and I wasn't aware that there's 750-odd recommendations out there. Um, but what particularly frustrated me, and I know it's frustrated many others, is the fact that ministers uh, in um, all uh, different parties of uh, government, also different um, elements of previous governments and ministers, are now uh, stonewalling the access of that information based on the, um, the privilege that they have under parliamentary privilege. And I think that's really, really bad taste. H, if I could just jump in there, just to kind of distill some of the points that you and Renee have uh, made so far in that some of the issues comes down to personnel recruitment and not having enough people on the ground to get the work done. And that's obviously a more complex problem. But then a lot of what you're describing just comes down to 
a, uh, a lack of political willpower. And that's across the years, that's currently. And that if, some, if one of the key issues is just this legis- legislative mess, then um, it's, and it's such a simple recommendation to, I know it's hard, simple to say and then harder to actually execute a change, but if a lot of it's just willpower, then what do we then do as a veteran community? I say that as veterans and people associated within that community, what do we do to sort of lobby for that change? Because if we have a Royal Commission highlighting the shocking suicide rate, if that's not moving the dial sufficiently to prompt change, what's next steps for us? I think all we can continue to do is initiatives like this, um, you know, is to write letters, um, you know, and, and, you know, persons who knew me 10 or 15 years ago, they'd sort of have a giggle that coming out of my mouth. But frankly, you know, highly emotive and, and you know, angry statements and, and lashing out. And, and, and for the uh, listeners, you know, we agreed prior to this not to go into persons, um, you know, not to mention, you know, there's, there's a lot of people I could uh, mention who uh, I don't think were the political persons or others who haven't helped this. This is not what this is about. We need to speak about the bodies. We need to speak about the organisations. And we need to continue through every platform uh, that we can find and are welcome. Uh, and I know so does Renee and, and so does Alex, uh, that any person uh, who listens to this, as in any uh, media person um, that you know, wants you know, uh, to expand or, or, or would like us to talk on this. And I do not consider myself an expert uh, by any means. But if they want further clarification, if they want further comment, if they want debate, then we're willing to do that. What we're trying to do here, and one of the key intents that we all spoke of prior to this, is to highlight some points, to start a conversation, to use another organisation's catchphrase, and to hopefully, you know, influence um, some of the decision makers and policy makers before they're made because we should also highlight um, that no one at this stage has um, said anything other than they um, they welcome the Royal Commission so they welcome the interim report um, and and they've made certain um, you know comments and remarks about the recommendations but no one has signed up to any direct action yet. And to be fair, uh, it is early, but I certainly would expect people to be putting a date on things soonest, and that would be in the next week or two. Um, The recommendations are highlighted as urgent. Um, And as Renee said before, this has been going on forever. You know, it's time for change. It's time for action. I mentioned the other day to a minister that uh, after he made a statement on the uh, interim report, um, and he said that they would make recommendations off the recommendations in due course. I think that language is, is not acceptable. I think people look at that as unacceptable now. Um, you know, there, there is, as I said, the recommendations are highlighted as urgent. Um, and as the current government's going with a defence review, that'll be the quickest defence review we've ever done. And, you know, kudos to them. They put a date on it, and it's a sharp date uh, early next year whenever it is so i think people now should be putting dates on this and that reassures everyone you know involved in the chain that okay on this date we're going to hear this it's not good enough to say in due course but i think that's enough on that um if i can add to that the i think um well there's a few things that have come out of that both uh alex in 
addressing your question, which I'll get to in a second, but also in what H was just talking about prior. Um, what this interim report shows us, and, and not us, I'm, I'm speaking about every single Australian here. So not us in our microcosm, in our community, everything in here we already know. What it's demonstrating and proving, and this is an important point, is what, yes, the Productivity Commission has already said, but it's proving in a way in which it will connect with the Australian public that this veteran system doesn't meet their expectations. This veteran system is, in fact, out of date uh, mm. and isn't, isn't uh, supporting veterans in the way the Australian community expects. I would also go so far as to say, because otherwise I would be doing myself and my organisation a disservice, it also, the Australian community, and I know this from being out in different elements of it, expects that veterans' families are also taken care of by this system because the Australian community seems to understand, and I'm talking big picture, but everyone from, you know, your colleague at work who isn't a veteran family or isn't connected to a veteran to doctors and GPs, to big business, to other ministers, not the veterans minister, but other ministers, everyone seems to understand that the unique nature of military service impacts more than just a veteran. Uh, but it seems in this veteran system, we're still having debates about mm. what is our responsibility to veterans' families? Who is responsible? Put very simply, I don't care. And mm. either do the veterans' families. Enough is enough. The Australian community knows, so it's about time that we stood up and, and paid attention. I Can think, I just jump um, in there? I just want to read a paragraph. <coughs> Sorry, yep. um, Renee, because you just uh, did an excellent lead into a paragraph I wanted to read later. I'll read it now. Um, in reference to what um, Renee is saying, so I'm going to quote this. We've also heard how partners have struggled with the ADF members' erratic and sometimes dangerous behaviour, their substance abuse, instances of domestic violence and depression, anxiety and suicidality. Because of injuries or mental disorders acquired due to this service. For this reason, it is important to understand what the research says about the impacts on family members, well-being, and to what extent DVA and ADF are aware of the research findings. One thing I've, um, you know, informally as a, as, sorry, as an informal advocate, you know, it's just helping people and receiving phone calls. And the, I've dealt over the years, um, one, when I was in the military because of my you know, seniority and position, with a lot of uh, girlfriends, partners, wives. Um, and, you know, we, we certainly weren't in the business of sweeping things under the mat. We're in the business of looking after the member. Um, and and I, I say that unashamedly because that is or was as a uniform member my priority. Now, that's not saying that I wouldn't do all I could to look after the families. The point of the matter here, uh, and again, the military, any, any member in the Australian Defence Force, it's not a job, it's a lifestyle, and you're asked to do things that no one else is asked to do. So we need to acknowledge that. So that's why it's extremely important that this goes beyond the serving member, and it goes all the way down and through and i'll go into some other quotes um later i'll just hand back over to renee on effects of the children you know 20 30 40 years after war 
um, of sorry, after one of their parents have been in a combat uh, or, or been deployed, and the effects on those. But um, sorry, Renee, back to you. Well, H, just if I can go to one point that you you just talked about um, in very simplistic terms, which is excellent. I think because it really resonates the unique nature of military service and why uh, you know it's it's why it why it has ripple effects beyond the veteran, but also why we must take care of those people. But I'm just going to add a little bit more. We need to remember that in Australia, these people are volunteers. They volunteer for this life. They sign up for this life and their life is about service to their country. Australia is incredibly lucky that we are able to have a volunteer-based system <clears throat> where there isn't any form of mandatory service, uh, where there isn't any form of conscription since Vietnam, but we need to nurture that and we need to look after these people who voluntarily put their hand up and the families that stand behind them and say, you can have my son and daughter mm. because really, you know, a lot of these people sign up at a very early age. So who is the family member at that point? It's normally the parents. It's important that we nurture that and that we create a system that people know no matter what happens to me, no matter, and those families know, no matter what happens to my loved one, we'll be looked after. We've got a unique opportunity right now to build that system because of what we already know right now through this report and all the evidence the Commission has heard, it's not fit for purpose. Just jumping off the, oh, sorry, Renee, just to jump on that comment though, it's something where, we are we have a great reputation as a def, for our defence force to have some of the best training, some of the best gear, some of the best opportunities in uniform that and the reputation of our soldiers on deployments like our time in Afghanistan, all that are second to none. And to have that world class while in uniform, and then to have so little, so little uh, duty of care, so little care and regard and training for life after service all that afterwards it the contrast is shocking and i think the report's really putting that into focus but alex building on that point uh, which kind of just takes us back to some of the points that um h raised before about you know parliamentary privilege being used and the royal commission not having access to all of the information it needs the royal commission must have access to information i can't put it any more simply do they have to release it all publicly? No, but they need access to information because another key point of this, which is what all of those veterans and their families who fought for this commission fought for, is accountability. And you kind of hit the nail on the head, Alex, when you said, you know, duty of care, that's a really important part. But if the Royal Commission and the commissioners and their council team don't have access to the information, if things are being kept draft so they don't have to be released, then we've got a serious problem because how are we going to fix this system if we're not giving the people who are tasked with the job of looking end-to-end -end at what's happening, we're not giving them access to the information. It's simply unacceptable. So I support all of those recommendations in the report. Um, but building on... Going back to your earlier point, Alex, and, you know, H has already touched on this as well. What can we do? Um, I think, you know, there's a number of things we can do, but what 
we need to be thinking about two things. There's a whole lot of evidence in this report. It, none of what is presented in here, none of these recommendations prohibit any organisation or anyone in the veteran community acting on what is already known in this report. So, you know, that's a bit of a call to action for the community mm. part of the veteran community. That's too many communities. <laughs> the non-for-profit <laughs> charity part to, you know, and businesses to come together, to collaborate, to look at what the evidence is in here, to understand what is our unique value as an organisation. And I'm going to do a cheeky plug for mine. You know, our unique value is we have existed for 76 years to advocate for the inclusion of veterans' families at a very high level. We were successful in getting war widows into the veteran system. Now we're going to advocate hard to ensure that all veterans' families are included in the veteran system. We also provide a wraparound support service for widows predominantly. Now we're going to be able to provide that for veterans' families. And we do that in ways of, you know, social connection, health and wellbeing, uh, and we're building a case management function. So I think it's about, number one, each organisation understanding their unique part of the pie and what value that adds to the broader system because there's a lot that I and my organisation can already do in here with the evidence that we've got. And I would call on every other veterans organisation to take these learnings and do the same thing. But what's critical is that we all come together because we don't, we, we don't have resources to waste in this sector and we need to make sure that we're being complementary to each other. Um, the other thing is as individuals, as representatives of organisations, uh, as, you know, we're thinking about, well, should we make a submission to the commission? We need to be thinking about how can we help them? So in the last few days, the pennies dropped for me. You know, we've got our three or four advocacy points. We've got the things that we really want to see as a result of this commission. You need to drill down on that. We need to now go to them with the solutions. We need to tell them what we want. We need to help them understand why we want it. And we need to help them understand what needs there are in the community that need to be addressed. So it's, you know, whether you're an individual who needs, who should be telling your story in order to give them more evidence to justify everything. If you're an organisation, you need to go on. We must help these, this commission. We must help these commissioners and we must continue to bring as much evidence forward as possible. There's been an extension to the written submissions deadline and we all must get behind that. There's a great point there, Renee, about the um, um, you know, dot .orgs and ESOs, etc., you know, it's, it's no secret uh, that uh, I've made uh, many statements about them before. Uh, when you look at the amount of these organisations that are registered and then you look at the amount that you hear daily doing uh, work, um, good work with veterans across the whole community, not a select little group. Um, when you look at the uh, organisations that are being extremely transparent financially, uh, as to where and what donations are being used for. Um, so uh, as Renee uh, has alluded to there, none of you, uh, the thousands of ESOs, uh, whoever you are, that are registered, uh, none of you need to wait a day longer to do anything. 
So if you're serious about helping uh, defence and the veteran community, then, you know, start now. Uh, there's no need to wait. There are so many little, uh, little and big things, but what I mean is you could start with the smallest and, um, and you know, move forward from there. And one of my favourite sayings, every pair of jeans started with one thread. So, you know, we need to all get the, you know, start threading, basically. Um, and the other excellent point, uh, which also I took a bit of, if, if there's any businesses, and, you know, this, this isn't a plug so much, this is, I'll help you. <laughs> if there's any businesses out there that are wondering, um, you know, as I've had some approach before and we've helped, how do I help this community? Then get in contact with us. Um, you know, I, I'm not saying that I'm the, again, the font of all knowledge on how to do that, but if I don't know, I'll certainly direct you to an organization uh, that will and can, um, or, or recommend you to, uh, again, we're not mentioning any by name here today deliberately, but recommend you to an ESO or an organization that is daily doing good work and is credible um, and is transparent. So I think that's also you know, a really good point that Renee made that, you know, there's, there's no need to wait another year. And if you remember one of the first conversations we've had on this recording, as we we're talking about the recruiting process and the training process of DVA and how much needs to happen. And we need to acknowledge the stress on that organization. Like, frankly, would you like to work in DVA right now? No, it would be an extremely stressful, difficult place to work. So noting what we've previously said about everything that needs to happen there, it's going to take more years, not months, years. It's just impossible to do it faster and to do it well. You know, we don't want to quickly do things here. We want something that's lasting, that's credible, that's fixed, that's enduring, and all the other attitudes I can think of. So. Well, H, Renee, it strikes me that although this is such an important conversation we're having this won't be the first time in Australian history that these conversations have been had, maybe at this public level and in a Royal Commission sense, but this isn't the first time this has happened. We can look and history goes in cycles, it repeats itself. And I've seen, just through doing this podcast, I've seen a lot of repetition, a lot of parallels between, say, Vietnam veterans and Afghanistan, Iraq veterans. You can extend that back to Korea and World War II if you want. But I think Vietnam also has other synergy and parallels, politically speaking in some regards, can we look back to previous generations and take lessons from there and apply that to the data and to the testimonials we're getting in this Royal Commission and try and have some good progress come from that? Yeah, definitely, Alex. One of the, one of the points, and noting Vietnam Veterans Day, as I've mentioned, the 60th anniversary was only a few days ago. Well, prior to that, uh, as I was reading through the report um, leading up to that day, it particularly struck me, uh, one of the paragraphs, which again, I will read out of here because I think it's important to just get this exactly right uh, in regards to um, the Vietnam veterans' um, children, um, as in their dependents, um, and, and the effects on those. So they've got some data on that. And I, and, and I will be honest, this totally struck me out of the field. I, I can't believe these figures. A 2014 study commissioned by DVA considered the impacts of deployment on the children of Vietnam veterans. The study found a high lifetime rates of suicidal ideation in the children of Vietnam veterans up to 40 years after their parent had been deployed. The study compared conscripted Vietnam veterans who had been deployed in any operational role for Vietnam, referred to as Vietnam veterans, and the Vietnam-era military conscripts 
who had not been deployed to Vietnam, referred to as Vietnam-era personnel, and then controlled the socioeconomic and educational differences. So very quickly, they're talking about persons who were deployed to Vietnam and persons who were in the military but didn't deploy to Vietnam, just so people aren't confused. Comparing the adult children of deployed Vietnam veterans with those of Vietnam-era non-deployed personnel, the study found suicidal ideation rates of 41% for the children of deployed Vietnam veterans compared to 31% of non-deployed Vietnam-era personnel. In comparison, the rate for general population was 16%. So in summary, the general population through that era 16%. For the Vietnam veterans, as in the persons who deployed to the Vietnam War, we're talking 41%. Now, those figures, um, it takes a little bit to sort of rock my boat. I, I, I was extremely astounded by them. The point is, coming back to an earlier point about families. So here are the children of a veteran. So they, they never joined anything. <laughs> They never signed up for anything. The children of a family 40 years later, you know, at 40%, 41%, sorry, 41% higher degree of suicidal ideation. Um, you know, that, that's just a horrific figure. And again, comes back to the other points we've been making that, you know, this is a lifestyle and we need to not, we need to certainly have a focal point on veterans but we also now need to extend that net or the umbrella or whatever analogy you want to use to the families and in particular, the children. And remember children as an adult, we are more conditioned to cope with things in general terms from a psychological perspective. And I'm not a psychologist, but from a psychological perspective, it's, it's a fact that an adult is more conditioned in general terms to cope with things. Children are not. So the children are always going to be more susceptible. And due to that susceptibility, we must take, um, we, we must be a lot more considerate of the effects of the veterans deployment uh, or deployments upon those children. So it's just a point I wanted to raise because um, like I said, out of everything I've read in here, it's something that really jumped out of me. Just if I can build on that, H, and just pick up some of the language in this report where it talks about um, trauma-informed care, I would observe that trauma-informed care is important, but we must take a long-term view on that. And that brings up a couple of, it builds on a couple of the points that you've made there where uh, I know through personal experience and it's also demonstrated by that data that you've just referred to, when someone experiences something traumatic uh, or, you know, whether that's vicarious trauma uh, or that's, you know, a trauma that they're experiencing themselves, it doesn't always manifest straight away. In fact, mm. it can manifest years later and the realisation can manifest years later. So just to go personal for a second, I really struggle with debilitating uh, anxiety when it's related to um, health and healthcare. Now, did that come from Gary's deployment? No. That came from work that I used to do many years ago as a young lawyer assisting the coroner where we would investigate deaths and we would try to make sure that they could be prevented. So how does that manifest now for me? I get sick. 
one of the kids gets sick, automatically I go straight to they're about to die and I must intervene now because Mm. I've seen too much of what happens when you don't. So that is, I don't don't even want to know. I I don't know because I already feel old. Years ago. Mm. But not only does it manifest, it probably manifested for a while before that, but I didn't realise what it was till now. So that's an important point. I think um, the other part that you raised, there is already research out there that tells us people who are bereaved by a death are already at a significantly higher risk than the general population of suicide. People who are bereaved by suicide are at an even higher risk of suicide than that former group that I referred to. And those children are at the highest risk. We know a lot already about the impacts of adverse childhood experiences. Now, there's a suite of them. The schools at the moment, well, most, oh, I don't know, the schools I've had experience with will screen for them. They want to know, have your children been exposed to anything that could potentially be, well, that is an adverse childhood experience. So there's a suite of them. Everything from mother being mentally ill, mental illness in the household, parents being imprisoned, multiple moves. Uh, There's also, you know, less dramatic ones as well. But nonetheless, they're traumatic for children because children don't understand. And H, you raise an important point. Adults are conditioned to, with coping skills, but that, those coping skills have their infancy in childhood. So if we can teach these children to move through the traumas, we can already flag them in the system. We know who they are. And we can start to give them the skills that they need to help seek, to form attachments, to make sure that their needs are met, even if those needs can't be met by their parents, then we're equipping them for the best possible future they can have. We're mitigating the traumas that have, had, that have already happened to them. So turning back to this topic, in my mind, there is no more urgent issue than to mitigate the damage of every veteran death on their family, but in particular, every death by suicide on the children that are left behind. All barriers to care and support for those children must be removed and removed now. And barriers, that those barriers are complex. It's everything from different types of funding arrangements and gold cards and, in short, and It's just, I'm going to sound um, quite direct. I don't care. They must be removed because we owe it to these children because the death of their parent is absolutely not their fault and we cannot let them go into teenagehood nor adulthood believing that it is. Yeah, very very well said and very emotive, Renee. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's just sad. It's sad. Because uh, it's like all things with with children, as I say, when when we've got so just unassociated with defence, you know, but children are innocent. Um, is the way I look at them. They're they're innocent, mm-hmm. and they're, they're directly that the protection of them uh, and what they're influenced by is directly responsible to the parents. And in this case, um, you know, it's just yeah, it's it's just a sad state of affairs. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think that's you know commendable 
um, Renee's in, you know, to just break that down and, and you know, yeah, we don't need to talk over it. You're dead right. Um, I'd like to just um, bear with me flicking some pages here. Uh, I just want to jump. We, we're sort of getting close on time. I want to just talk uh, about some statistics briefly. So it's, it's a bit numerical. Um, but I think it's extremely, extremely important. And, and also how some of the, so the data, so how some of the information is captured, or in particular in this, this topic, how it hasn't been captured. Um, so first of all, the, there was a consensus um, last year. And that consensus, uh, sorry, the consensus is on persons who have served uh, in Australia. And there was 581,139. So just short of 600,000. Australians reported as being current or ex-serving personnel. Um, another thing I read in the report is, uh, and I believe it's 100, it's 150. So every time a, a incident happens, um, like an attempted suicide or a suicide uh, to a defence person, we, we look at you know what's called an ink blotting effect or a mushroom. Again, use what analogy you want, but how far does the impact of that flow out, okay? And it's reported it's affecting about 150 plus personnel. Um, so, you know, when we look at, we've got 600,000, just under 600,000 uh, persons uh, either serving or ex-serving in Australia, um, then start doing the maths that every time something happens to one of those persons, noting that we've had hundreds of suicides. So this isn't, you know, a matter that's affecting some defence people over here. This is affecting Australia community quite quite more broadly than I think any of us were aware of. Um, another point I wanted to um, go over was in... Um, sorry, just bear with me. I've just lost my way. Hey, can I just build on that go, for hun. a sec while you find okay. your way? Um, so I think just building on that, you know, you're quite right, around about rough figures, 600,000 Australians. But mm. while we don't have figures on, on veterans' families yet, I'm sure you can figure it out if you can delve into the statistics and do some smart maths, which I can't. H, you might be able to. The best data we have at the moment in terms of families is those 600,000 veterans are in one in five households in Australia. So I think that shows you how much of how much this affects the broader Australian community. Yeah, it's it's huge, and and that's the you know, to use a counter ter um, not counter terrorism, a counterinsurgency term, which is ink blotting. So if you'll picture uh, a piece of sorbent paper on the bench, and we drop a dot on it, and you watch that dot grow, yeah, and right. then you drop a dot over here, and then you drop a dot there. After several dots, because it's how, like I said, it's a counterinsurgency analogy, but how mm. we join security mm -hmm. in areas of hostility. You can use the same uh, analogy or mm. theory um, for, you know, all of these dots will, are almost, if they're not joined, some will be joined. Uh, it's extremely important. Um, just another thing I wanted to go over was, you know, it was found um, which to me, I've sort of known this because I've you know, tried to seek information and find out numbers over the last years um, and what's been determined to date. Uh, there are a few organisations and a couple of new ones, which one I'll go into in particular, but out of all of the data sets and all of the information that was provided to the Royal Commission, 
there is not one single source that was considered as reliable. So again, very important to note that out of all these numbers uh, and information that we have, there is still a large quantity of unknown. We just don't know because it's not reportable. Uh, sorry, not not reportable. It's just unknown. Um, and I think that's really important. Now, the defence, because once I got, uh, after I discharged, um, and I can't remember what the circumstances were, but I, I looked into this and I, I was absolutely amazed. Uh, I think it was after a couple of um, former two commando persons um, suicided. And I was absolutely amazed that defence, because I wanted them to know more, so I'm looking for more information. And it absolutely amazed me that defence didn't have a database, uh, defence in particular. Um, so we have other government organisations and, uh, and health organisations that have these databases. Um, defence should have a database. Defence now has a suicide database. Um, now, it was started in uh, 2015, um, and it only covers deaths from 2000 onwards. So our own database... Um, you know, is, um, you know, it was only started recently, unfortunately. Uh, and again, uh, there's so much data that just isn't in there yet. Um, it's good That's that a really important commenced. point, Kate, and I'm sorry to interrupt there. No, but don't be sorry, go. A lesson from some of the consultation work that we did, um, which led to our first submission to the Commission, really demonstrated to me through the qualitative evidence we were collecting that unfortunately veteran suicide is not a new issue. Mm. Uh, the problems that are being surfaced at the moment have existed and have gone back generation upon generation upon generation. Uh, the problems that are being surfaced as well are not new. Um, it's just that we're talking about them in a public forum for the first time. Yeah, no, yep, that is an excellent point. And it's noted, uh, as you would all know all too well at the start of the report, that, you know, it's that that finally, you know, we're talking about things and talking about them um, uh, very openly, um, especially some of the lived experiences and that things are just being said. Um, to quote Renee, which is, I might use your quote a bit, you know, let's just get on with it. So we need to get that information out there in the rawest terms. It's not nice. You know, this is an extremely emotive extremely complicated subject um just before i sort of sort of just before i start wrapping up i always use uh, another example you know when we're talking about and trying to help people understand you know the mind and again i'm not a psychologist you know if i um go outside in a moment and i break my arm and then i also uh, run over that arm and set that arm on fire and basically cause an immense amount of trauma to my arm I'll go down to that hospital and piece by piece, the surgeons will prioritise and whether they'll do the burn in last through a skin graft, they'll fix the bone, they'll get the plate, they'll do the surgeon. You get the point. But through by the end of today, they'll know exactly how to fix every single component of my arm, no matter how bad the trauma is of it. It'll be fixed or the plan on how to fix it will be pretty well in place and Renee would know this all too well um, with her husband's um, accident. Now, when we have trauma inside our head, so when we're talking mental health, things that are occurring in our brain, there's no map. 
you know, there is no map. And this just, you know, I, I have to say this to people all the time and myself, you know, it's the most, you know, we've got all the experts in the world and all this. It's, it's just so, it's such a complicated and emotional uh, issue. So again, um, you know, I think we need to look at the data sets. We need to keep compiling stuff and we need to overlay, you know, to use an intelligence you know, term of fusion, which is what they're trying to do here, which again is extremely difficult. We're fusing the data, the numbers and these lived experiences and they're trying to, they're not trying, they're doing the best job they can to put these two um, facets together. And then out of that, you know, we'll drive things. And I just wanted to make that point. You know, we, we can't underestimate how difficult that is. Um, it's extremely difficult. And, um, yeah. um, I'll hand over to, um, hand back to Renee and then to Alex to close. Um, I think it's best we sort of start trying to wind up because of the time. Um, I would like to, there's many points I'd like to reiterate, but I, I, I won't because otherwise I'm just repeating things we've gone over. I want to make a one point um, before I thank um, both of you. And that is, again, I've said this, but, um, you know, if people are listening to the, or the people that listen to this, um, you know, we encourage, um, you know, it's widest bandwidth. So, you know, to share it, uh, and we want that to occur to create more awareness. We want that to occur to hopefully help shape some decisions um, as the intent is um, and, and also to continue to break down any of the stigma that may be surrounding, you know, talking about this. Um, we're, we're all more than welcome to talk further uh, on the interim report. Um, you know, if anybody would like that, um, I believe it hasn't got, um, the amount of media that it should have received, it's such an important issue. And that's just been unfortunate because the way the media cycles work, and that's one of the main motivating factors of why we wanted to do this, just to get, get something out there. Um, and on that note, I'll, I'll finish. So again, thanks very much, Renee. I, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on. Um, certainly your knowledge on all this and the work that you do is um, commendable. So thanks very much. And Alex, Thank you for hosting. I, I did ask Alex to host it because I didn't want to do the work of editing. And then he can he, and he makes a great host. So thanks again, mate. It's always good to work with you. Thanks, H. Um, before I give, <clears throat> I guess, my acknowledgements and thank you too, I just, I wanted to build on that point you raised before about your arm. Please, number one, please don't go and do that. Uh, H has given that example before on this show. I think he's got it in for his arm. I get mixed results with that example. Whenever I go to give it, I'm like, <laughs> anyway. So. Uh, so number one, please don't go and do that. But you're quite right. There is no map for the mind. Uh, and why is there no map? Because we're all individuals. We're all unique. And we've only ever existed once. Uh, so I think while that shouldn't be taken as, okay, well, there's nothing we can do. There's no map for the mind, but there's skills that we can build. Um, and you know, we can, we can engage in particular types of therapies in order to move past some of, you know, the traumas and experiences we had. Some of them are really strange, but they are incredibly effective and strange mm. from a logical, logical side of the brain's perspective. Um, I think as a, as a support system, what that means for us, so that as an individual, you know, there are skills 
uh, and there are treatments available. Number one, really important. Number two, as a system, that means we must take individuals as they come. We must re recognise the fact that they are individuals. We must take a needs-based approach to policy, to legislation, to support and to care, not a time-based approach, not a category-based approach, but a needs-based approach. Um, and I think the other point that I'll make in closing is if nothing else, what we can see from this report uh, and this Royal Commission is that veteran suicide isn't just government's responsibility. It's our collective responsibility. And it's also the responsibility of every Australian to say, hey, not fit for purpose, not meeting our expectations, do better. And mm. for those of us that can do something with this information, we must do something with this information. Um, because sitting the, I think one of the critical errors that's been made before with every other report or the 50 odd, all of those recommendations are made to government, but no one else takes responsibility. So it's this, there's a quote that basically says, you know, what happened to me may not be my fault. It's a, it's a quote I learned in doing my own therapy. What happened to me may not have been my fault, but it's my responsibility. So it's the same with this. You know, it might not be, a, you know, belong. the issue might not belong to a particular organisation or a particular arm of the veteran system, but it's our collective responsibility to take action. Um, and then the last thing I, of course, want to say is I just really want to thank you both. Uh, I want to acknowledge both of you for the work that you're doing in this space and helping us to um, us as veterans families to to raise our voices. Um, and of course, H, you know, I words of gratitude from me can't express how grateful I am to you, to uh, all of yours and my husband's two commando colleagues for letting me understand for the first time what uh, not only the defence family but what a family is uh, and that comes from a very deep place because you know there is no one better to have in a time of, of crisis or heartbreak than any of you and your colleagues and I just you know I have the utmost respect for you all um, and I'm happy to come in and around you and support you in the same way that you supported me all those years ago so thank you Thanks. Thanks, Renee. You're almost making me upset. So let's get on with that. No, I really appreciate that. Thanks, Dal. Thank you. It means a lot to me. Well, look, thank you both for coming back to speak today about this very important topic. And it's it's a very personal conversation. It's something in the public sphere. It's something causing headlines, something we need more headlines about, as you said, H. But it's also deeply personal for your own lived experiences and people you know and loved ones. So thank you for sharing. Uh, this kind of topic is important. It also can be emotional labor, so that doesn't go unnoticed or understated. And if anyone listening to this has, uh, this has brought up anything, speak to someone, please. You can find H and Renee's previous appearances on Life on the Line and our Life After Service video documentary series in the episode description of this podcast and on our website. You can also find our five previous panel episodes in seasons two and three, focusing on the topics returning home, the Vietnam War, life after service, Australian infantry against the odds, and modern veterans. 
We're on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Life on the Line Podcast, on Twitter at L-O-T-L Pod, and on LinkedIn at Thistle Productions. Reach out and continue this conversation. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions, artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thank you for listening, and lest we forget.